Hello, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. And um, you know that big weekend is coming up. And uh, it is, uh, of course, as we know, extraordinarily hot weather out there. So I have no doubts that many of you are going to be looking for the nearest pool. Uh, or if you uh, are fortunate enough to have a place in the country or friends with a place in the country, you're going to be looking for that river or that lake. But, you know, I just had a very profoundly uh, scary experience with my husband in the past uh, couple weeks where he got uh, deathly ill from a um, skin infection that may or may not have been contributed to by um, uh, his his hanging around in the river uh, uh, over the Memorial Day weekend. And I discovered a lot uh, that I didn't know about um, how an infection can be transmitted to your system and uh, bring you uh, very close to um, death's door in a very short period of time. So um, I, I really didn't know anything about this myself. I didn't have any personal experience with it. Um, and it wasn't until after uh, we got past the crisis and, and we're still on the road to recovery that I um, learned from others of many, many other experiences that my friends and associates have had with the same thing. So here's what it comes down to. Um, uh, if, if you happen to have an open wound of some kind, uh, one thing that you m- may have to think twice about is being in the water whether it's in a pool, in a, in a uh, uh, outdoor, uh, uh, in some kind of a lake or river, or even in a bathtub. And, and, and I'm not sure exactly what the process is, but apparently being in the water can tra- transmit uh, what is essentially a rather relatively innocuous infection in your skin to your bloodstream. And people have been known to die within uh, hours, within a day or so from when that infection enters your bloodstream. So this is a very serious matter. And so I have um, two uh, medical experts uh, that are going to be with us over the next uh, half hour who are going to talk about this with us. First up is um, somebody I know you're familiar with, Dr. Corey Haber. Haber, I can't believe I said Haber. I've been in Louisiana only 40 years. What is wrong with my head? Um, <laughs> hi, Corey. Hey, how are you? Good afternoon. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. I, I, I have to admit that I'm still, uh, quote, in shock over this whole thing because the night that uh, I, I, I had to take my husband to the emergency room, or as I call it, the non-emergency room, you know how that is, he right. he came home from a conference, took his shoes off, he had tremendous pain around the site of a, a little bit of an abrasion that he got from a new boot that he was trying out, not even that he was wearing that day, but that he had worn. And um, I, it, within within an hour, he was shaking convulsively. He had nausea. He had a headache. He had a fever that shot up to 101. And while one of our doctors that we called uh, said, um, we'll bring him in tomorrow, um, that was before all these symptoms developed as quickly as they did, um, I I said, I don't know what's going on here, but this is scary. We're going to the emergency room. Before it's all over, you know, 
it appears that he either had sepsis or uh, he had a very bad infection in his leg. So uh, help me here. What is this all about? Okay, so let's uh, let's let's do some quick definition. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. Okay, so when you have bacteria in the blood, okay, that's called bacteremia, right? So when you have virus in the blood, that's called viremia. So anything that's in the blood is called emia. Let's say it like that. So when you look at something like sepsis, that means that's more of a condition, meaning that that's when you have symptoms. So bacteremia, you can have symptoms. I mean, bacteremia, you can have symptoms, and the, the bacteria can be growing in your blood, or you can have bacteremia and have no symptoms, right? Because you could have bacteria growing in your blood, and you don't have any symptoms. That's possible. But sepsis is the symptomatology, meaning low blood pressure, um, shock, those types of things. So that's sepsis. But you have to have some type of bacteria or virus or fungus or something in your blood to have sepsis. You understand what I'm saying? So sepsis is a condition whereas bacteremia means that you have bacteria in your blood. So that, that's kind of the difference. So what happens here? When Nobody's ever supposed to have bacteria in your blood, ever, 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 ever. That is a no-no. And so if for some reason you get bacteria in your blood, how does that happen? That means that the bacteria that's on the outside of your body has to some way get on the inside of your body. So that is like a cut. So if you have a cut and you submerge your cut in water with a lot of bacteria in it, then that bacteria automatically goes into your bloodstream. Make sense? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, so, wish so, to, I wish so I'd what? had a clue, uh, first of all, that he had a, an infection because I know he had had a sore and he had been treating it with your typical antibacterial ointment and Band-Aids, so it wasn't like he ignored it, but I had no idea that it was getting serious, and that's kind of my next question. How do you know when you've gone from just having a little cut that is meaningless to something that's more serious. And then secondly, I had no idea that submerging in water could cause that infection to spread. Right. Well, this is the thing. It's not necessarily submerging in water will make the bacteria, make the infection spread. It's that, I'm going to go back one step further, right? So when we talk about um, uh, your your first point, when you have uh, an infection, then your body is, is trying to fight that infection on its own, right? And, and then a lot of times that's just not possible because you have to, uh, the bacteria or the virus will try to overtake your immune system, and that's when you need help, meaning you need antibiotics or antivirals, stuff like that. Uh, but when you start looking at the bacteria getting into your bloodstream, that means that your your humoral um, immune system, your B cells and T cells and things like that will start trying to fight. So when you are exposed to a virus or a bacteria, then and it gets into your bloodstream, it starts to replicate very quickly. So what do you usually see? Usually it's a staph bacteria. So people, you've heard people saying a staph infection. The reason why it's called a staph infection is because it's from the Staphylococcus aureus bacteria. And the reason why that Staphylococcus aureus is called aureus is because the Latin for gold is aurum, right? So that means that the, that bacteria makes a goldish pigment, right? So that's why pus is golden, because it's usually caused by staph aureus. So when you start having that type of infection in the body, then you are going to have some localized reaction, meaning you have rubor, which is redness, tumor, which is swelling, Calor, which is 
heat, dolor, which is pain, and then functionalasa, which is loss of function. So those are the, the, the five elements. So if you have redness, pain, um, swelling, um, heat, and then you start having where you can't use it, then those are the things to let you know that this infection is going to be something that you have to deal with. Now, the bigger issue is that if you cut yourself, that infection will probably be okay, nine times out of ten. But if you, because there's bacteria on your body that you have to deal with all the time, so whenever you cut your skin, you're going to get a little bacteria underneath it into the blood, and then your body kills it. But when you go into waters that have a lot of bacteria or protozoan or virus in it, that's when those bacteria get into the wound, and that's what makes it bad. It's not that the the going into the water makes the infection that you already have bad. It's the fact that that water has stuff in it that gets into your already open sore. So, like, for example, you've heard this flesh-eating bacteria, this Vibrio vulnificus, and all these types of things. All these things are always in warm water, and honestly, if you have liver problems and things like that, I would recommend that if you have a cut and you have a liver problem, I would never go into the Gulf of Mexico because you're setting yourself up for a bacteria that'll kill you. You know, I mean, it's very real. And like last summer, we saw it. Uh, and it's not something that is just so rare. I mean, it's just like cholera, you know, so these things happen. So what you, but, but the, the take-home message is, if you get those five, one of those five conditions, after you get a cut of any sort, whether it's on your face, whether you're in the water, whether you're at your house, whether you're in the snow, rubor, calor, dolor, um, and uh, functionalasa, uh, then that means that you really have to get it looked at. And, well, you know what, it, uh, 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 doctor, he had all of those. He had the. It came on so suddenly, though. As I said, it was just sure. you know overnight. And that's another thing that I think people have to be aware of is that this thing can move very fast, can't it? So he had redness, he had pain, he had swelling, he had heat, loss of function. The only thing I can say about loss of function is that when he walked, it hurt that so much more. And and then uh, in his case, that night he had uh, convulsive shaking, you know, so he was had the chills. And, his, right. and then he had a fever. Now, the chills and the fever is what told you that it went beyond an infection exactly. in the skin at the location, and it was, and it, and somehow his blood was affected. Now, when they cultured his blood, apparently he had what's called um, Staphylococcus um, hemolyticus, but an yes. infectious disease doctor later uh, feels that that was actually from the blood test a contamination and not yes, from the yes. infection and so he right. didn't feel like the infection had really caused bacteria in the blood so how could he have symptoms of sepsis without having um, theoretically the bacteria get into the blood that's what I, I, is a mystery to me right well a couple of things um you can that the hemolyticus um actually can be a pathogen or it can be a contaminant so it's hard to say most of the time, it is a contaminant. There's also a staph called staph epidermidis that lives on the skin along with the hemolyticus. Um, it's hard to say, but you can also uh, bacteria in the blood, and when you do the culture, it may not come up. It could have been a bad culture result. I mean, it's hard. It's really always hard to say when it comes to to exactly what bacteria it may have been, even though we, we really at all points. 
Uh, um, Corey, I'm having trouble hearing you, so I'm going to ask you to talk a little louder because the audio is really bad right now. There's some kind of phone problem here, and um, your audio is going in and out. So talk a little yeah, louder. It, I'm sorry. Yeah, because yeah, because it's actually hard for me to hear you guys too. But um, yeah, so there's so I'll, I'll say that again. When you have um, a bacteria like Staph hemolyticus or Staph epidermidis, they generally are a contaminant meaning that you just get it because it's on your skin when they do the blood culture, but that means that somebody who did the blood culture didn't know what they were doing most of the time. Um, but it also could be a pathogen. It's just hard to say. I would say if you have um, sepsis, which is symptoms of um, fever, chills, and low blood pressure, if those things are, are there, then along with any time you have in those five things we discussed. So let, let's talk about it like that. If you have a cut on your body and you have redness and, and heat and pain and all that stuff, and you start having a high fever with chills, then you need to go to the hospital because that's the beginning of shock. And I, you I, make I, it there, and it may be something totally different, but you can't take that chance. You know? I, and, 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 and the stories that I have heard since this happened are frightening. Uh, what I heard, uh, for example, uh, one associate of mine s- told me that his father scraped his leg getting out of the pool one day, and uh, 44 hours later was dead. And, sure. and and then when I looked this up on, on the uh, Googled it, it said that 35% of people who go into sepsis shock die. This is yes. life threatening. This is what I want people to hear, that they have to think very seriously. And then again, the stories I've heard uh, since have been uh, mind-boggling. Now, not only is, are you in immediate danger, and, and by the way, in his case, he, his blood pressure did drop. By the next night, it was, um, it was 76 over 44. And by the way, that's another part of the story that I want to cover with you, is, is that apparently his, his blood pressure was dropping all day, and there was apparently... Uh, nobody really noticed the fact that it was dropping. Each of the readings right. was low, but not a danger signal. And it wasn't until it was down to 76 over 44 that the nurse looked at it and said, whoa, what's going on here? And then, you know, right. it's, we're in the middle of the night and we had to go, you know, drag a doctor out of emergency to, to deal with it. So I, that one of my cautions about dealing with your patient, your loved one, when this happens is that you're not out of the woods you know, just because you're in the hospital, you would need to track what's going on. And Always. I would say, hear those readings and mark them down. Keep a record. Always. Keep a Always. record of what's going on with the blood pressure and the temperatures and so on, right? Always. When you go to the hospital, the hospital is the most dangerous place in America. And I tell people, please do not go unless you really, really have to. Um, and I'm not to be facetious about any particular hospital here in, in Louisiana. What I'm saying is that when you are sick, you you know nobody really is going to take care of you the way your family would, but you sometimes you got to go to the hospital, and when you go, you have to be very vigilant about the people that are taking care of you because they also have lives too, and they may have be having a bad day just like in your job when you ever have when you have a job, some days you know just like today you know the uh, the microphones aren't working so you might be having a bad day so it's going to be a little bit different for you so when you go to work and you're a nurse and the blood pressure machines are acting crazy and you're having a bad day you're not the best you know what i mean it's your best and so it's it, it's one of those things that you have to be hypervigilant for your particular patient or if it's you um make sure that the that the doctors all wash their hands before they touch you you know i think it's very important to do these types of things because if you don't 
then you um then you risk you know really having a problem in the in the hospital. But the the sepsis, we'll get back to that. Sepsis happens very quickly because once these back you got to remember bacteria, they don't replicate like two, four, six, eight. They replicate logarithmically. So it's two, four, sixteen, sixty-four. You see what I mean? Really? So it replicates very it replicates very quickly, and there's different types of bacteria. And gram-negative bacteria produce what's called an endotoxin. And as they produce, as they reproduce, they release a toxin which sends you into shock. And so that's why it's so important that when you see the symptoms of that cut not getting better, and then you start getting chills and you start seeing that red streakiness on your leg, you have to, and you start having those systemic symptoms like you know the chills and the fever, you have to go in and get checked. Uh, 265-9265, by the way, if anybody else is is hearing this and has had a similar experience, I want to hear about it. But all right, now let's look at the long term. So then the next thing I learn is that, okay, you you take your antibiotics and you're getting better and you don't have a fever anymore, you don't have a chills anymore, but maybe you still have some redness, especially when you walk. But, you know, right now at this point, he still has some redness and some pain and some swelling when he walks. So we're not out of the woods, and I'm wondering, okay, how long is this going to take? And then I ran into a friend at City Hall yesterday, and she tells me that her mother had has had an infection for a year. I say, so, whoa, okay, now what is the story here with the long-term implications and how do you deal with that and and, and what do you do? do? There's really, that's a very rare case. Um, Usually if if you have an acute infection where it requires antibiotics and then you start seeing that the redness is going down and everything is going back to normal, then that's fine. However, if you start taking antibiotics and you see the redness is really going down a little bit, but it's still hanging around, or it goes away and then it starts to come back when you, when you finish the antibiotics, then you need to be seen again. Because you have to remember, it only takes one or two bacteria to restart this entire cascade. Um, and as well as if the bacteria has lived in your, in your blood and then re-eradicated, sometimes it sets up in your heart. And that can, that's called myocarditis. And you can have infection in the heart from a, a past infection of the blood. So that, that would show shortness of breath, fever of unknown origin, just all of a sudden you feel a lot really tired after you, knew, after you know that you've had sepsis. So that's another thing that you have to look for months after you have had sepsis. But, but if, you, if, if a person has had an infection for a year, then that's a problem. And that person, you know, needs to really, you know, there's more specifics involved than you know, I've had an infection for a year, and it's just kind of festering there. Because if you if you have bacteria actively growing for a year, you wouldn't make it out. You understand what I'm saying? You if it's constantly growing, it's just not going to just sit there, and then you have it for a year. Either it's going to get better, or it's going to get worse, and then you're going to have to deal with it. If it's a a true bacterial infection and not just uh, a, a localized reaction of some sort. So back to the situation at hand. Here we are. We're three weeks out. And we still have these symptoms, not not the fever, not the um, uh, the chills and, and so forth, but still have redness and swelling in the area. Um, I would, I would what's the prognosis here? I would go back and look. I would go back and have them take a look because they may need to aspirate the area and pull out a little blood or pull out a little of the uh, tissue and, and look at it under for culture. Because it shouldn't, if you, have, if you took 
you know, the 10 days of clindamycin or Bactrim or whichever they had you on. And, um, and it still, it still shouldn't be red. It shouldn't be red and mildly tender. Um, it should not. Hmm. All right. So uh, this is something that, um, we really have to, uh, keep an eye out for. And as I say, the main reason I had you on the show today is because we're going into the 4th of July weekend, and I just know a lot of people are going to be in pools. They're going to be out in the, in the, in the rivers and the lakes and the bayous yeah. and so on. And so well, the, I wanted to be careful. Now, uh, I now have the pools, heard the by pools, the, not, the... The pools generally, not, not usually a problem, okay? If, if, the pools generally chlorinated, not usually a problem. Everything is fine. So if you cut yourself and you're coming out of a pool, more than likely it's the... It's the uh, the thing that you cut yourself on was in, was uh, contaminated with bacteria. But just so you know, there's a huge amount of bacteria in the Gulf of Mexico right now, and we've had several cases of this quote-unquote flesh-eating bacteria. That's nothing new. It's just the same kind of bacteria that's been there before. But it is starting to, you know, the w- water's hot and the bacteria gets a little high, the levels get high. So if you cut yourself this weekend in the Gulf of Mexico or in any lake, or any stream, or any river, then and it starts to turn red. First of all, you need to rinse it out immediately with clean water. I mean, and I don't mean just rinse it out a little bit. I mean a whole bottle of water. You need to squirt in it pretty good. If it starts to turn red and angry and full of pus in the next day or so, you need to go to the hospital. Don't wait. Okay? All right. Now, finally, um, let me uh, uh, ask you one last question. It looks like we're not going to be able to... Um, get uh, Dr. Retard on the phone. I'm not sure what happened there. But um, what is, is, is this any more common an occurrence? She's next. Um, oh, Dr. Retard is here. Uh, send him in. Send him in. Because, uh, okay, uh, oh, hi. How are you? So, um, I, and, and you're just in time. You can put these headphones on. And uh, uh, I will ask you both this question. And, um, you know, Again, sometimes you don't know about something until it happens to you. And I don't know whether you were able to hear our conversation on the phone, but we've kind of reviewed a lot of the information around what happens with um, uh, sepsis and uh, skin infections and so on. Uh, And and Dr. Uh, Corey um, uh, Aver has been on the phone with me uh, to this point, and he's still on the phone. Uh, But my question now is, um, is you know, again, you don't know about something until it happens to you. I've learned a lot about sepsis, about the danger of infections, about being in water and so forth. That's what we've been talking about. And um, now my question is, is there greater prevalence of these kinds of infections today because our bugs are getting stronger? Um, and on also, we have heard lately about the, the so-called the flesh-eating um, bacteria that has been found uh, off Grand Isle and I guess in other locations along the Gulf. And so um, I, I would really like to hear from Dr. Retard on this issue of are, 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 are we facing any kind of a, a trend? Is there any kind of statistical uh, uh, phenomena going on here? Or is well, this Jean, just something Jean, I'm just I, learning can about I, it? Can, can I address it first as I, I actually have a little something I have to uh, run to do? Okay, thank um, you. Yeah, so I have a... Um, yeah, I, I think that we, you know, with our with our quote unquote global warming, I think a lot of people are thinking that that's something that's not real. Um, that's very political, so I won't go into that. But I think uh, that it, you know, with our eroding coastlines and our our uh, 
constant amount of, of uh, stagnant water around the areas. I mean, I think that we definitely have an issue uh, of people going further and further out into our natural and wild environments, and these things are starting to happen. We know that there are some resistant bugs out there that may not have been there for the last, you know, 40 years, and that is something that we have to deal with, and that's kind of the doctor's problem and doctor's fault for overprescribing antibiotics. But I don't think that they're just new, crazy, you know, bacteria that are out there that are just coming up now that are something that we haven't had to deal with in a long time. I think we, the resistance we have to deal with, but the fact that those bacteria are out there, those protozoans out there, um, the viruses are out there, and, and they're out there and they're not going anywhere. I mean, that just is what it is. So we have to make sure, because we're going further into their habitat, that we could, uh, cover ourselves and, and empower ourselves enough to know that when we have that, you know, and I'll say it again, we have, you know, rubor, calor, dolor, um, functiolasa, uh, Redness, pain, know. swelling, heat, loss of function. That's right. right. When you when you have those things and you've gotten a cut and you've been in one of these bodies of water, you have to deal with it and you have to deal with it swiftly. Thank you so much, Dr. Aver, for being available. I look forward to um, my visit with you next time, although I hope it won't be triggered by a personal experience we've been talking I about. Know, of course, right. my husband's right. own exposure and Dr. to and Dr. Uh, sepsis. And Dr. Yeah. Ritard, you have a great day as well. All right. Thank you, guys. So, Dr. Ritard. Um, is is uh, he is our uh, Louisiana state epidemiologist, and many of you have been familiar with him. He's he's in the news on occasion, talking about this. But um, the last question I just asked, Doctor Abair, I, I really have a sense now of of the potential threat uh, to having a, an open wound and going into a body of water. I've heard a slightly different points of view about. Um, is, is what happens as a result of, of getting into the water when you have a sore caused by what's in the water or just simply by water actually transmitting what's on your skin or in your infection into your bloodstream. But um, either way, it's a pretty dangerous situation. But uh, what, what I want to learn from you is, again, this last question I asked, is there any kind of a trend going on here? I've just been shocked at the okay. number of people I've talked to since this happened to my husband who have experiences, who lost, who lost loved ones like almost overnight from, because this thing happens so fast. Well, what's, what's in the seawater, for example, is that Vibrio, Vulnificus, has been there for the millennia. millenniums. It's in all the seawaters. It's a natural inhabitant like you would fish. You would find fish in the water. You find some of these flesh-eating bacteria, the vulnificus. You find it in the uh, coastal reef in Australia, in uh, South Pacific Island, like in New Caledonia, where there is absolutely no pollution. So it has been there forever. Um, in the last 15 years in Louisiana, we have seen maybe 5 to 10 cases of flesh-eating bacteria due to that Vibrio. Now, we need to mention that the flesh-eating bacteria, there are many of them. The most common is the strep, the strep group A, the one for your sore throat. Some of these have a toxin that can almost dissolve your tissue inside. So the strep group A, the strep group B, and the staphylococci, they are the main cause. Vibrio vulnificus is only 2 or 3% of all flesh-eating bacteria. But it can cause a very serious infection, and it can go very fast. So 
One of the reasons why you, um, so far he has been fairly constant, one of the reasons why he probably will increase in the future, besides the fact that it's getting warmer and people uh, will probably go I more didn't in think the of sea. That. Yeah. A lot of people that have a depressed immune system, uh, either because of uh, some disease of the immune system, because they are on uh, cancer chemotherapy, because they are on high dose of uh, steroids, um, because they have a serious liver disease, that's a major factor also. These people are more susceptible to get a very serious infection after exposure. But, so most of the people that get the serious uh, compl complications are those that have a problem. But you can see, there have been examples of young people with absolutely no problem, no diabetes, nothing else. They were young, they were healthy, and they have a, a wound in uh, contact with the seawater, and they get the infection. And that infection can be cured sometimes, and sometimes it can progress quickly. Few days, few hours even. It's rare, but it does happen. So, and... Uh, People always think, well, you must have something with your immune system, uh, uh, diabetes that's not controlled. And that's true. Most of the, these cases have something. But even healthy people can have a problem. So, uh, I mean, obviously the warning <coughs> in part is that um, we have to tell people that uh, they have to be careful if they have an open wound. Uh, 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 going into the water. Uh, the, the trickier part to me is, is, is now what I was talking with him about also is as it progresses, let's say uh, in the case of my husband who had, a, he was in sepsis shock basically when we go into the hospital. Um, it, it got worse to the point of his blood pressure dropping very low. And by the way, blood pressure is another symptom of, of uh, sepsis uh, or a, some kind of um, blood infection. Um, and then, uh, you know, through the antibiotics and so on, he, it's worse. It's better. But he still, three weeks later, is having redness, some swelling when he walks, and some pain when he walks. And he's not feeling that well yet. No fever anymore, no chills anymore, and so on. So the long-term process is what I'm interested in as well. Well, fairly often, um, if it looks like it's very serious, and you have an infection in the, in the leg, for example, they are going to cut off your leg, and that will be very quick. Uh, but as soon as it gets away from the leg or the hand from the local uh, area, and it gets into the blood and you have the full-blown sepsis, then you have a major problem because it takes a lot of antibiotic treatment to control the infection. And at that time, there are many systems that are going to start uh, shutting off you may have problems with the heart, the kidney, the, many of your systems that keep you alive. So it can be, you, you can go from being healthy, having a wound that you didn't uh, take care immediately and uh, get into shock maybe a few days, but sometimes it's a few hours. And, and uh, you know, here we are in Louisiana where we always talk about how uh, much we, uh, water we're surrounded with and, and, of course, with this heat. Um, and, and, and Dr. Aver uh, pointed this out, and I haven't really thought about it, but we are getting warmer. I mean, right now the, we've had some extremely hot days here in mm -hmm. May. So with this warmth, water is, is even more prone to having issues. Am I right with when, yes. when it's hot? 
Yes. Dur during the, the summer, more people are going to go into the water. The water is going to be warmer. So bacteria that are in the water are going to multiply much more in the summer than in the winter. So, um, and, and even in a chlorinated pool, um, I'm thinking that if, if the pool water is warm for a considerable period of time because of how hot it is outside, that water, even though it's treated, can be dangerous. Well, if it's treated correctly and uh, regularly checked to maintain a good level of chlorine inside the pool, that should be okay. But sometimes people put the chlorine, and if they don't check regularly that, uh, uh, how much chlorine well, is left. Well, even if, you know, most of the, I think most of the time when people have a pool, they clean it at least once a week. But you take something like we had all this rain mm -hmm. yesterday, yes. uh, then you have a condition where that pool is no longer really uh, at, this, uh, at the level it should be. Now, we're talking not just about the uh, private pools, but, of course, all the public pools in town. Yes. Now, I'm sure the public pools, they probably check those, like, constantly every day. So I just passed one over here on Gentilly Boulevard on the way over, and I couldn't help but think about this issue and say, okay, I hope they're treating that water the way it needs to be treated. Yes. Yeah. And if you go in the rivers, the ponds, um, The fresh water. Bayous. Uh, so you have uh, <laughs> two problems there. Along the rivers and the ponds and all that, you have cattle, you have squirrel, you have all kinds of animals. None of these animals have been toilet trained. So <laughs> they have droppings there on the side. If it's a little bit of rain, it goes into the river. And so the major risk here is to get uh, a gastroenteritis and diarrhea. If you are in good health, usually you would, you would do well. But if you start diving into a fresh pond, a freshwater river, uh, you, the risk is that the water goes up your nose, and that's when you have the brain-eating uh, amoeba. In mm. fact, recently there was one in uh, North Carolina. It's very there rare. There was one in St. Bernard Parish last summer, I remember. Yes. Yeah. So it's rare. Okay. But it does happen. So um, I, I'm going to run out of time, and I'm sorry that it's we, okay. we uh, had a problem with your schedule. But um, I have one final question. So um, as, as, uh, as people uh, go forward in, in, the, in the summer and they're, and they're uh, thinking about this and concerned about it, um, if something happens, um, one thing that I found is, you know, I, I call emergency rooms the non-emergency rooms. They're so slow. What is the best place for somebody to go to initiate uh, the investigation and possibly the treatment uh, should something happen? Well, um, the most dangerous wounds are those that are deep. You know, if, if, if it's fairly superficial, it's fairly easy to disinfect. If you have a deep wound, whatever you put on it is going to be fairly difficult to go inside. You know, you step on a crab, you step on a Point, uh, an oyster and you, it's going to go inside. The best place if the emergency room is full is to go to an urgent care. It's always a good idea also to have your uh, uh, family, uh, family doctor that you go to regularly that can help you out fairly quickly mm -hmm. instead of going to a place where nobody knows you and you are going to have to wait. So But call your doctor, number one. Um, and number two, maybe the urgent care might be a better solution than a very uh, slow emergency rooms. But quite frankly, if somebody's already in shock, I'd say emergency uh, room. Def definitely, if yeah. you start up, if at the beginning for the small care, 
But if you, you start having fevers, feeling bad, dizzy, things like that, go immediately to the emergency room. And they are going to recognize that you start being in a serious trouble and you probably will go before those people that can wait. So I don't mean to be a total Debbie Downer about the holiday here, but I do think it is important to to be cautious about this issue. And I thank you so much for taking the trouble to come all the way in here to talk with us about this. Now, the most dangerous is the boulevard in front of your place. Remember looking both sides because that's probably where you are going to lose your foot. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much, doctor, for coming in. Okay, well, we're going to turn to the lighter side of the holiday now. Uh, I did uh, want to make sure that we dealt with this uh, to to the level that we needed to, but I have two other guests in in the shop, and we're going to have to squeeze them into a slightly smaller time frame, but we're still going to have some fun here because, first of all, we're going to talk with um, a woman, uh, she's got the uh, uh, the fun name of Bambi Deville. I don't know where you it's came my up real with name. all that, yeah, but uh, I love name. it. And um, <laughs> she, among other things, she's a vintage clothes um, merchant. And I started out with the idea of talking about, you know, let's have fun with the holidays. Sometimes I love to dress seasonally. Um, I love to really. Um, uh, uh, to look at the possibilities of, of, you know, different color combinations that have to do with the season. I certainly want to be in white uh, in the summer. And then when when Fourth of July comes around, red, white, and blue is almost irresistible. And this lady has come up with the, the clever idea of taking some of that fabulous Art Deco Bakelite jewelry that we're familiar with from um, – our childhood, just from seeing, not not that it was made during any of our childhood, but although there are some people in my audience, I'm sure, were here when this first came out. But uh, over time, uh, finding this in the collections of, in the stores and, and uh, in our grandparents' uh, collections. And she's pulled together a collection of um, patriotic Bakelite jewelry. Exactly. And 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 now uh, we can find some of this at, at the World War II Museum. Well, actually, the, my book, the book that you're looking at, published by Schiffer, is the collection of World War II Bakelite jewelry, which I started collecting many years ago based on seeing my grandmother's wearing the patriotic jewelry. And that's what got me interested when I was a child, that, you know, they always wore patriotic jewelry, flags, my grandma DeVille. We're here, we're from New Orleans, and... Um, she always had the flag in the front yard and the flag. and I mean, she wore it all the time. She didn't just wear it for the holidays. But when I went away to college in New York and I started collecting radios, I was collecting radios since I was young. Oh, those old Bay Quiet radios right. too, it right? It was the music. Yeah. It was the right. music. I was very interested in the, the, the um, radios that came from the period of the music that I loved. Mm-hmm. So I started collecting the radios and discovered the jewelry at that time and came across some patriotic jewelry in the old 26th Street flea market in New York, and that was the beginning of The all-time great flea market Absolutely. of the universe. Yeah. I've been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best. And um, it's gone now, long gone, right? Yeah. But, um, so the jewelry is actually still in my possession. The World War II Museum had, we had a little exhibit. I did, I did a line of jewelry specifically for the National World War II Museum here in New Orleans. Oh, the anchor oh, okay. necklace I'm wearing now. Ah, and this is okay. based so this on is, oh, the okay. necklace in the book. And so, and so it's still available and it's not limited to just the collection. The collection's not available, but yeah. the jewelry that I'm 
doing Inspired by the Collection is available. Trashy Diva carries it here in New Orleans. Uh-huh. They do really well with it. Um, the cherries and the anchors. Um, and so, then so let museum. me just give people because yeah. we're not television, so I can't. Uh, you can't see it. Although, if you uh, go to our um, website, crosstownconversations.com, um, uh, we will uh, have some images uh, there that you can see. And I do put out a newsletter that uh, has some pictures of it. But I love these; are so much fun. These are planes and ships and anchors and Navy boys and you can buy the book at the National World War II Museum. The book. And the book, which yeah. is a scream. I love this book. It it's is amazing. It's called World War II Bakelite Jewelry, Love and Victory. What a fun gift this would be for somebody who has a birthday anywhere around the 4th Ju- of July, exactly. right? Well, these are, these are adorable, and I, I highly recommend them. Let's talk for just a minute, though, also um, about vintage clothes. The clothing. I have associate Because yeah. I, I can't help but think when the summer comes on about gingham and the red and know. red and white and I, yeah specifically um and it's amazing when you you are collecting jewelry over you know the decades like oh wow if every period had a trend of patriotic clothing hmm, interesting um i have dresses and blouses from i would say from the 30s and 40s of course in the patriotic inspiration but the 50s the 60s especially and the 70s it's very strange how many the red, 70s, white, and blue. 70s, not exactly a patriotic right. era. Right, that's yeah. what I mean. And mm-hmm. But then um, flag patches and things that you wouldn't imagine would be so patriotic, but there was it was a time when people were very specifically wanting peace. So I don't know if that had something to interesting. do with it. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Actually, wouldn't that be interesting of sort of the, the peace a symbol um, has also been a major factor exactly. in design and jewelry. Right. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all if when you come right down to it, there's some patriotic jewelry that also involves the, the peace symbol. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. So the, the store, my stores um, in the French Quarter, and I have the vintage jewelry, but you can also come there to see the Bakelite. So um, what about, uh, um, give me some examples of some of the, you know, patriotic clothes that one might be able to snare in some of the vintage stores right now. Okay, well definitely, you know, the the bell bottom jeans with all the bell the, bottoms. I know, I right? bell bottoms. <laughs> with oh the my patches. God. A lot of patches, the patriotic patches and, and what's interesting patches. when you look at Don't Tread on Me, which is what I have a de- Don't Tread on Me brooch in this collection from the thirties. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the patches, the Don't Tread on Me patch being a being in a a lot of the clothing and then of course like we said the flags um the cherries and the hearts very very the um, hearts yeah, yeah sweetheart jewelry the sweetheart mm-hmm. jewelry yeah mm-hmm. um the 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 pearl harbor pin which is really interesting but these are things again like you know you're right it's very visual i mean you can go online and see some of the pieces mm-hmm. and online app. yeah there's like the um the national world war ii museum um, it's actually schiffer Publishing has uh, Schiffer mm-hmm. Publishing is the publisher. They have photos. If if you just Google Bambi Deville Augeron, that's my name, you would like there are lots of places that sell the book and they have pictures and mm-hmm. you know of that. But the clothing, um But you have a store here in New Orleans too, right? Where is your store? 818 Royal Street, which is between Dumaine and St. Anne, just one block off the square. I try to forget that the Beignets are right there, you know. <laughs> it's like okay, we'll try. We'll try but real hard to get that. Sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, that we're it's pretty um, 
central location, and we're open every day. Well, um, I, I, I'm a vintage uh, clothes fan, have been uh, forever, and um, have many, by the way, old bathing suits. Which are really amazing. Great old sort of Lana Turner type uh, bathing so suits that uh, wouldn't we be seen in public so in. But I do enjoy, personally, enjoying. Yeah, and, um, girls and, wear them. Yeah, they still wear them. And then I have a, a lot of the old rayon shirts, you know, with the yeah. flowers yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and all kinds of geometric forms on them that are so much fun to wear. I don't have any cherry necklaces. Oh, you need I'm a cherry have necklace. to work a little harder at that because uh, cherries is such a great symbol. As, well, uh, I do the cherries well. myself and my line, and the, one of the big things about it, it's it's recycled resin, and they're only $125, um, $145, and they are, you know... They're not, they're not three thousand dollars like the Bakelite <laughs> necklaces. Okay. Oh, you're kidding! That's right. how much an original Bakelite. Oh uh, yeah. Thousands. Thousands. Oh my God! Those Thousands. bracelets I had, I had a whole bunch of Bakelite bracelets. They're long gone. I don't even know where they disappeared to. But I, I, I maybe should have held on to them a little more carefully. Well, this is fun, and as you, you know, is appropriate because I wear my anchor necklace, especially on the Fourth of July every year. Absolutely, I can see that. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Bambi, thank for coming for in. This was, really a, this was a it. kick. Um, I really uh, love this stuff. And so, again, your store is in the 800 block and, and right in the heart of the French Quarter. French Quarter is a cool place to hang out over the holidays always. And Especially so, good now. It's quiet. Is it quiet? Well, it's off-season, you know. I mean, it'll be busy sort around the fourth. But, yeah. I mean, the summers are nice. You can really yeah. stroll around in the morning and have a nice morning. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great Enjoyed that you. enormously, and keep it going. Thank you. Um, okay, so you know we have visitors in town, even though we are off season, um, and and maybe sometimes uh, off season visitors are here for slightly more serious purposes, and we have a very very interesting young artist in town who um, is doing some uh, unusual um, work. That um, I, I shouldn't say unusual because there's a lot of installation, a lot of socially um, oriented art being made in the world today. In fact, this is actually what I would call virtually a movement. It, it's always been a factor. People have always tried to deal with social and political and, and um, issues through the arts. But it just seems like right now it's, 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 it's more so than usual. And, and so Chloe Bass is here. She's a conceptual artist. She's based, of course, where else? Brooklyn. That's where so many artists live these days. And, and actually, we have many here now who have come from there. Um, and she's here as part of a residency with the Antenna Group on uh, St. Claude Avenue. And um, she has a very specific mission while she's here, and I want you to tell us about it. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, so I am here investigating the public transit system in New Orleans. Um, I've been working for two years on a project called the Book of Everyday Instruction, which is really looking at one-on-one uh, -on -one relationships in private and public and all different sorts of circumstances. And what I'm interested in studying is kind of the intimate relationships that people develop on and through transit, um, either temporarily or longer term. Huh, longer term, so are you implying that some people meet up on the subway or the bus and the trolley and, and then lifetime relationships come from that? 
I don't know if it's, you know, uh, suddenly you're marrying someone you met on the bus, right? Maybe, sure, that would be great, although I think that would probably be the exception rather than the rule. But I do think that we have these kind of longer-standing relationships with the system, sometimes with a driver or with a fellow commuting passenger, that become kind of meaningful even though they're um, shallow in terms of time. So, actually, you've just recalled from me an experience that I hadn't thought about in maybe 30 years, but for a time, I worked, I lived in the village in New York, and I worked in Newark. And so I took the path system across uh, under the Hudson River and, and uh, to get over to uh, Newark. Uh, I worked at Prudential Insurance Company. It was one of my favorite jobs ever. I was studying the future. I was studying 100 years from then, and uh, it was a fascinating uh, position. But there was a young man who was usually in, for some reason, must have traveled at about the same time that I did, in my train car, and he just kind of mesmerized me. So I guess I must have stared at him just a little bit too much. Sooner or later, we actually had to have a conversation, and we wound up dating and, and spending quite a bit of time with each other for quite a long time. So... Um, I can well imagine, because here you are in this contained environment, whether it's the bus, streetcar, or a, a train, and, and um, you know, you're there for maybe half an hour, maybe 40 minutes or so, and, and, you, and you often, if you're commuting, are going to see the same people repeatedly. So it's not surprising, in a way, that there would be that kind of interaction. But tell me more about what kind of interactions you're expecting, or you've been already traveling on, on the public transit here. I have. I've been traveling on public transit here in New Orleans for nine days so far, and I'm going to be here for about another week. Um, and, you know, it's not that I'm imagining a particular type of interaction, but just sort of noticing the ways that New Orleans is very socially different, for example, than New York, which is very socially different from Cleveland, which is socially different from Omaha, which is socially different from London, and so on and so forth. So just seeing the kinds of relationships that people have in public space, also, I think the transit system itself is undergoing a number of changes at this point, um, and that that changes people's relationship to it. Whether they feel that it serves them, whether they feel that it's for them, kind of increases or decreases levels of comfort and intimacy in certain ways. Um, so we know that public transit is public, right? It's in the name. But I, I want to kind of figure out a little bit more deeply what that means and what it means to be engaging in public space in that way. So, so far, I've noticed that people in New Orleans, uh, if you are... I was going to ask you, what, how, is the, how, yeah. how is the New Orleans uh, public transit traveler different from some of these other cities? So people are much more likely to give unsolicited advice about the transit system if you look confused. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. People are eager to help. They help each other mm -hmm. sometimes with conflicting information, um, <laughs> of course. which I have no way of parsing out since I'm a newcomer to this city, but I find it really interesting socially. And honestly, because I'm here for two weeks doing research that is just being being a writer, I'm not in general in a hurry to get where I'm going. So if I take the wrong advice, it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> I can't say the same would be true at home. Um, nor would it be the same, right, for somebody who's trying to get to work. Um, right. But it's interesting for me. It kind of works for me as a social mm -hmm. experiment. Um, People are not so, so different from some of the situations that I've experienced in Brooklyn, although I also live in Bed-Stuy, which is a historically black neighborhood, and that actually has a lot of people who migrated from the South, although more from North Carolina than Louisiana in my mm. particular neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So there are some social conditions that I find similar on buses mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and some that I don't. Um, For example? Just the way that people are going to say, how are you doing? You know, the way that people are going to kind of interact with each other with the presumption that you do want to interact with someone else, which I think is actually the opposite of the stereotype about New Yorkers. Um, 
New York is not rude. We're just in a hurry. Um, I'm sure there are people who are who are in a hurry in New Orleans, but I haven't met them yet. So it seems like there's time for interaction. No, I would say that's that's very true. But I don't find in New York you have so many people on any sidewalk at any time. You can't really greet everybody. I mean, even if you were inclined to, you can't. Whereas here, you're you're going to pass one, two, three people on a block, and you can take that moment and say, "How you doing? All right." Um, Good to see you. Good morning. I say good morning to everybody that passes my house in the morning when I come out to get my newspaper or whatever. And in the evening, the same thing. And the people who pass with their dogs. I mean, you just have to say hello. And I get a lot of tourists in my neighborhood because I live in Esplanade and in the, in the uh, Treme. And so people are always passing. And the, uh, my house has got a lot of sculpture in front, so people are always very curious. So I, I, I have conversations every day with people in the street. Not so much in New York. I think it really depends in any city, like, where you are, right, and also how comfortable you feel. And here I think that there is a desire to make people feel comfortable in certain types of ways. Or all of this is just to say it shapes the way that a city is perceived kind of more poetically. So there are all these conditions that come into play into a city that are facts. And then there are these other things that are super poetic, super interpretive, um, and super personal. And those are the things that I'm really most interested in. So how did you get started on this idea? And and, and give me the context in terms of your overall um, uh, oeuvre that you work in, and your, your artwork and your thinking and your writing. Sure. So I come initially from performance world, actually. I come from performance and theater. Um, And I haven't really been working in theater for a long time now, since about 2008 was the last time I really did that. But coming from that world, there is this really strong and clear belief that you can work together with people who are your temporary collaborators to make something that is completely fabricated by your imagination and then bring other people in to witness it. So I think I was taking that idea of the collaborative form, the multidisciplinary form, and the form that involves people, living people, and I really wanted to bring that into my art. Um, So for this particular project, it's actually a scale up from the scale that I started at. So I started doing social work at the level of the individual. Now I'm working with pairs. Um, After this, I'm going to be working with family size units and bigger and bigger and bigger. You get the Hmm, idea. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So all of this is kind of of a piece of the same work, um, but the particular investigations for this project are really motivated by certain one-on-one relationships that I've noticed are really prevalent in my own life. Um, And understanding that these levels and layers of intimacy exist in all different sorts of ways, not necessarily just like the romantic relationship, which is what we think of as the pair. Mm -hmm. So um, where where does this come out? Take take me forward to you do the investigations with the larger groups and and the, the work that you actually show and express to the public. How does that? How does that translate from your investigations? Sure. So each chapter of the project has a kind of different central inquiry question and also is actually taking place in a different city, um, so far all in the United States. So I started out in Cleveland. I was exploring the idea of what it means to spend time together. And for that project, I actually interacted with 16 strangers that I met through Craigslist, um, doing activities that they would normally do with somebody else. They would swap out that normal partner and replace that person with me to walk a dog or cook something or get a haircut or whatever it is you normally do with whoever you normally do it with. That experience was recorded in three different ways. 
First, um, I was actually slightly documenting visually using a mini Polaroid camera, which is just kind of a fun little toy camera you can use. I turned those photos into a more f formal photo series after that, and each photo was paired with a text that I wrote describing the time. I was also collecting all of the materials that I got during those interactions, and those were displayed as well. So anything that I received incidentally as part of my time with that person was available for the audience to see in the gallery. And then I also designed a series of games and interactions that could lead people through the show so that they could actually recreate some of the emotional experiences of closeness or intimacy or strangeness that I had experienced with some of my activity partners. Uh, what fascinates me about your approach to your work is it, it feels extremely uh, formalized and systematic. It's like you, you really, um, you, you, you map out a plan and you're going to follow your plan and you're going to get where you want to go. And I can't let this interview end and, and I would really like to hear back from you after you've finished your investigations in New Orleans and are ready to start your next city or maybe even call me from the next city and, and give me some of the comparative information. But what struck me from your bio and from speaking with you is a, a, a tremendous deliberateness in your life. It seems like you really choose to go in a direction and, and stay with that direction and, and make something happen that you, you'd like to see happen. And I'm, I'm struck, and I can't resist asking you this question, because for so many people in New Orleans, it's really a struggle to get funding and recognition for what they do. And your bio shows that you are um, quite um, determined and effective in getting that recognition and that audience for what you do. So I share with the artist in the audience, how you go about making that happen and how they should and, and where that deliberateness in your approach comes from. Sure. Um, I mean, I think for me, the deliberateness is actually a part of the work itself. It's like playing a game. Any game that you play, there are rules, right? So you're playing Monopoly and it starts to feel kind of wacky and crazy because your friends are wacky and crazy and someone stole money, but basically that's within the system of rules at play. I want to play out the entire game and see how it goes. So when I make these structures, that's a part of actually making the work. Um, it's not a way of working, it's a form of working, if that makes sense as a mm -hmm. distinction. It's mm -hmm. formal for me, the same way that a painting can be formal. Um, in terms of the funding and the support, I mean, first of all, I have to say that I've been tremendously lucky and tremendously fortunate to have had the support of the organizations and institutions that have helped me um, financially, personally, in terms of meeting collaborators or participants for my projects or showing the work. Um, I can't say how grateful I am, but also the most important thing <laughs> is that for every success that I seem to achieve, I've probably received 79 rejection letters, and that that is a very real thing. And I don't know anybody who's not facing that, so just keep at it. I think that's so important. Too often people are put off by those rejections and don't keep pursuing the objective regardless of the and, and every famous author, performer, uh, achiever of any kind can tell you that same thing that you've just said and I think that is a critically important lesson. I love what you're doing. I'm fascinated by it. I wish we didn't have uh, get backed up by um, traffic on the part of one of my other guests. It's quite um, alright. I really look forward to hearing from you again as I said um, as the conclusion of your work here either while you're still here or where you've gone. So this was Chloe Bass and she is working through the Antenna Gallery on um, St. Claude Avenue.